Episode 3 continues exploring how town leaders maintain key services during the pandemic. The podcast features Shelby Marshall, Alan Edinburgh, Maureen Amiot, Wendy Mickle, Ed Bain, and Lucius and Brian Marks. Hello. And I'd like to welcome our guests today, Shelby Marshall and Alan Edinburgh, both who serve on the select board of Westboro. Now, as a background, Westboro has a select board form of governing body with five people each serving three-year terms. And both of you were members of the board prior to COVID, during COVID, and continue to serve. So I'd like to start with you, Alan. Um, can you tell me in the last five years, what was the most challenging issues that the board had to face? I, I think the most challenging issue the board had to face was the COVID-19 pandemic. And that really had two facets, specific response to the pandemic, as well as keeping the town operating and moving forward. Mm-hmm. Now, prior to COVID, though, what was your meetings usually um, revolve around? Our meetings revolve around a whole number of issues and responsibilities. Um, The select board is the executive branch of government for Westboro. And while Christy Williams, our town manager, runs a leadership team with the department heads that oversee day-to-day work, the select board deals with policies, committee appointments, union negotiations, some enforcement actions on permits and things of that nature, fiscal management policy. So it's a pretty broad range of responsibility. And so really, COVID was your first um, extreme measures that you had to look at. And as you said, it was extremely difficult job because everyone was in a state of uncertainty. Yeah, I, I would I would just add, if I could, Mary, that uh, prior to COVID, you know, we had just um, implemented our strategic plan. And uh, so we were really jazzed up and excited about th- all of those elements. And, and you know, so uh, collective efforts, certainly by all the town departments and, and the various boards and committees that kind of wrap around that, including our board. And the um, I, I think it was a it was a full focus on that. And, you know, so we we're going along and we we're excited about kind of all these different elements and boom, like COVID hits and. Uh, I know we're going to touch on this, but or I hope to, um, is that the amazing thing is that that work continued and we dealt with COVID. And so yeah. I know we'll get into that. Yes. Now, COVID strikes. The Board of Health takes a lead in discussing with all the boards what was going to be happening. Um, what was your first tasks then as a select board? Sure. Yeah. So, so uh, as you mentioned, so the Board of Health really sort of was was the lead, appropriately so. Uh, they convened several meetings that certainly included our board, included the school committee and uh, superintendent and um, uh, lots of other individuals uh, to make sure that um, really on a weekly basis, uh, we were uh, all collectively as the town's leadership team up to speed on what was going on, the progression of uh, transmission, et cetera, and any impact it would have not only on our um, uh, town, you know, kind of uh, services, 
um, but certainly, but you know, students, um, families, and businesses. So you know, the, those conversations were going on, and, and pretty early in that process, we identified that there was a need beyond just kind of the town's work to organize a task force. Okay, well, that seems like a lot of uh, more energy that needed to be. Uh, conjured up by all of these people. And I know that um, the town board is not a full-time position, but rather what they do after hours as a contribution to the community. So, Ellen, I wanted to ask you a couple of things about um, how did you change the board and how it functioned with the responsibilities that they were now once COVID hit? Um, the number of meetings that you had prior and the number of meetings you needed to have afterwards. How did that influence how work was done, knowing that there was going to be more coming that was unknown? And and definitely unknown. And as Shelby mentioned, COVID-19 didn't replace the ongoing normal work of the board and of town governance and government. It added to it. And so we went from our normal meeting schedule of one meeting you know, twice a month, basically every other week, um, to multiple meetings a week and month. Um, Sometimes those were to have regular or more frequent meetings with the Board of Health. Later on, when restaurants could start doing outside service to get the permitting and the alcohol permits issued, at one point we went three or four weeks where we were meeting twice a week solely so that if a restaurant could get their paperwork and, you know, get the tables and the fencing they needed in order, that they wouldn't have to wait to come before us and get the permit and open up. We could get them opened up a week earlier or, or days earlier. It didn't really matter. We wanted to be responsive. Um, our typical packet of information we get to prepare for each meeting averages a little more than 150 pages. During the COVID period, they were running about 300 pages. So a lot of information to, to process and digest in preparation for those meetings as well. Yeah, I would I would add to that that so we met around I think it was about fifty one times. It's actually in the annual report. Yes. I don't have a copy of on hand here as we talk, but we met around fifty one times that year to emphasize what um, Ellen had said, and um, there was a sense of urgency in every one of those meetings as it related to COVID to make the best decisions we could based on the information we had on hand, without being. Um, in, well, while still delivering a level of service to our residents that they, um, you know, that they expected. Okay. Now, we have a very diverse town, and um, there were 43, I think, that was um, stated in one of the data points that I saw of different languages spoken. Sure. So how did you both, in terms of your support on the um, board, work around having to inform the public in 43 different languages. Sure. So uh, I'll, I'll touch on that for a moment. So as part of the task force, we uh, identified a multidisciplinary team uh, that included members of uh, town staff, um, youth and family, including youth and family services, members of the Board of Health. Um, it extended out to uh, faith organizations in uh, the community it extended to volunteer organizations such as the Rotary Club and Westboro Connects, the Women's Club, uh, the Chinese American uh, Association. And so that task force really, um, if you could kind of visualize, I know we're on a podcast, but sort of fingered out into the community to 
uh, tap into smaller pockets. Um, and so we certainly recognized quickly that we needed to create a resource sheet of where could people find information, whether it was around housing or, you know, where do I find gloves or just, you know, kind of any other kind of supports. And we um, created those in translatable language. And, and our, in fact, our whole town website can be translated in a variety of languages. So people right. just kind of click on a button. So, but we, we absolutely made sure that that was in, it done. And a shout out to the school department yep. because um, the school department regularly translates um, all of their materials into, depending on the topic, the five to eight most prevalent languages in addition to English. And they availed those translation services and resources from within the district to the entire town and helped right. out as well. So as you mentioned earlier, nothing stopped with running the town while COVID was running around <laughs> and making life difficult. What were some of the things that the town was working on? Um, uh, Shelby mentioned the strategic plan had just come to fruition, but you can't stop running a right. town. So what was going on? Um, everything. In fact, a great point of pride is that even when the building had to be closed, because of state or federal mandates, our town offices never actually closed. They continue to operate, people continue to do their work. Um, early in the pandemic, led by Chief Purcell, um, there was the creation of a continuing continuity of operations plan for every single town department with the what ifs. You know, what if you can't get in the building? What if half your staff are out because they have COVID or they've been exposed? How are you gonna maintain your service, what level of service you can maintain. Because through the process, you know, we still had to finish construction on a school, fix the potholes, repair the water main breaks. Um, and we even continued with other major projects. Um, we bought over 100 acres of open space near the Fail School and off Belknap Road. Yep. And yet COVID still came to town. Didn't care about the potholes, did it? No. <laughs> now tell me... Um, both of you, how do you think that as members of the community and of this executive board, and by the way, I should mention you are paid extraordinary amounts of money. It's $500 a year for this position where you said that you went to 50 plus times mm -hmm. a week um, during a time period of meetings besides trying to still make a living. So I applaud you for all of that time and energy, but I know the financial um, compensation was just so alluring that I'm surprised no more people aren't clamoring to be board members. And, um, and, and, and to that point, I, I will point out that um, with COVID, there was concern about certain town revenues dropping and impacting the budget of taxpayers. So... Um, given our huge $500 a year stipend, it was granted symbolic, but the select board waived um, accepting those. And it's even in the current fiscal year, it's not in the budget. Right. Right. Well, again, an example of how kindness can work. So now I wanted to know resilience is what another word for creative thinking, critical problem solving, but resilience in a community is often hard to pinpoint. But during the pandemic, there have been some amazing efforts to bounce back, to make better um, each of the areas. So you mentioned that you kept going in spite of making um, the best decisions that they could. But I'd like you to each give me some real examples of 
how you tried very hard in the midst of all this chaos and having personal uh, families, members, home, working at school, wives working, husbands, and all of that stress, and then having this on top of your priority list, what were some of the ways in which you saw the town and your executive group being practicing resilience? So uh, I think that there were um, collect there were many small acts of kindness and work and community that um, took hold, and um, collectively those made a, a really big impact. And so you had groups like um, the Rotary Club and others collaborating to make um, uh, masks, um, surgical masks for a local for a hospital in, in Milford. And so they literally got the plastic. They, it was shields, I should say. I think that's the better word. And, you know, and it gave people a purpose, right? Like we're sort of stuck, but we want to help. And that was the number one thing that I, I heard. I, I never heard sort of the hunker down. I'm not part of this community. Every person that I certainly encountered was like, how can I help? We had seniors sewing masks. Um, we had um, individuals asking about like, what about food? You know, how do we, you know, are there individuals that normally would go to the food pantry? Do they need help? What about other people that just can't get out? What about people that are sick, right? Like, and can't get out like for, uh, because they have, they have COVID and how are, how are we helping our neighbors? And I saw countless acts of, of that kindness, um, which I think then creates resilience within the community, right? Because you're looking out for each other and it makes and, us all stronger. And, and I would say in addition to kindness, a lot of creativity um, from residents as well as, you know, department heads and town staff. And so, you know, when the library couldn't be physically open, they figured out a way within all the rules and restrictions to do curbside pickup and started home delivery, which is a service that continues today. Um, our, our, our fire chief is early in the vaccination process with vulnerable populations, was able to come up with a system where um, when, we, when the focus was on senior citizens and the elderly population, frail population, if they couldn't make it to one of the clinics, they were doing home visits um, and you know, scheduling appointments and showing up at people's homes to get them vaccinated and to check in on them. Uh, when uh, Meals on Wheels was struggling with the ability to deliver meals. The senior center put out the call and they were overwhelmed with people who were willing to max up, mask up and sanitize and deliver meals to members of the community. And so um, those acts of kindness, um, the level of creativity really helped find solutions um, that touched the community in a very powerful and broad way. And, and I think that, I mean, Let's be honest, too. One of the beauties of COVID that still remains today is the ability to have virtual meetings, right? So previously it was, you know, to your question about people working. And so we have our meetings at night. Um, so there's been a real spillover benefit to that, that uh, the governor uh, enacted emergency orders that allowed us to have at that time totally virtual meetings, uh, which actually thanks to the folks that are recording our podcast today with Westboro TV's help talk about resilience. I mean, I, um, you may be including this in some of your other work and, and recordings, but they went from handling a handful of committee meetings, you know, 10 or so meetings a week to like, I, I don't even remember the number, but it's in the tens of many's. <laughs> and, um, but that created a an increased level of transparency in our town government. And I think for people that were home and theoretically had more time on their hands because they weren't traveling, um, 
they were more engaged. Like what's going on in our town government? How how is our town helping residents to respond in these different ways? And it was everything from how can you still check books out at the library to where are the vaccination clinics? So there were always um, so that transparency certainly made it easier for us as board members because we could dial in wherever we were working or otherwise. And um, and those meetings could then be carried out to to the public in a way um, that that certainly was easier. And um, uh, the other uh, piece of that that I would add is is that uh, I think that that has a has had a positive resulting impact that you know people are more interested in what is going on and they've seen the positive impact that a highly functioning collaborative government, both like sort of public, the, the big paid employees, so to speak, and the many volunteers, how they come together to, um, you know, deliver effective and meaningful services. Alan, do you have anything you would like to add? You know, I would just add that because I think because of the creativity and the involvement of the community and the effort by town staff across all departments, it really enabled the, the big picture work to continue as well. And so I know we talked about how the strategic plan had just be approved, but during COVID, we also, you know, the B. Walt Trail feasibility study was completed and accepted. The climate action plan was um, completed and accepted. We've mentioned the open space acquisitions, the affordable housing trust was created and launched and actually stepped in with emergency rental assistance for people facing eviction because of COVID-19 and filling in gaps in the state programs locally. Um, all of those efforts, you know, it's not just the select board, it's the, it's the citizen volunteers on the committee who also kept the work of those committees and efforts running. And it was fabulous and it's much appreciated. So it was a wonderful bringing together of the managing boards of the community with the community. And ironically, something that was isolating us in some respects brought people closer together, which is a... Um, oxymoron, you know, where you have two things that are not connected and yet they're, they are connected. Um, we did talk a little bit about how previously where you were working at home, you had families. Um, how did you, how were you personally resilient in that situation? What did you do at home and what did you find that you were embracing? For example, one of, um, the people that I interviewed said, just getting to have breakfast and lunch with my family was so amazing because usually everybody was in a big hassle to get out the door to get to school and get to work, that we could have lunch and we could have breakfast together. So think about, you know, some of the positive things in your lives that COVID brought to you, brought to you by COVID, um, that were um, <laughs> meaningful and that you might look to continue. Sure. want to go? You can start. Okay. So <laughs> always I, collaborative. <laughs> so uh, several things. I'll try to make them quick here. One is I think that um, the pace of life in some ways was frenetic, right? We had a ton to do as select board members in addition to our, our professional and personal lives. Um, but um, we rose to that challenge. And yet the pace of life in some ways slowed down at the same time. So it was this kind of like you had, we had this, immense amount of work, of crucial work um, on the town side. And yet it was kind of like, we're all home, right? So it was just, it was a it's real kind of dichotomy there. The other thing I, I will say that I continue to today to have an immense appreciation for 
and it has framed my thinking forward as we look at projects is um, I benefit from owning my own home and I have personal space. So I could go outside in regardless of the weather and be in my yard. And it became like, this is my safe space. There are many people in our community um, that live in, you know, maybe a more com uh, like a, an apartment complex, right? Where there is certainly communal space, but it's not their space and it's shared space. And I think for me, like, as we think about things like how long do we keep the beach open so that people have access to that? Or what is the accessibility? It really has framed my thinking in a, in a very different way and given me an appreciation for that. Um, and, and then equally, as much as it brought our, all this brought our community together, I also have a much deeper appreciation for the isolation that it created in your own home sometimes. Like if someone had COVID and they were like in that room and you're sort of like sliding the food through the door and like around the corner. Um, and as well as like you were on your own little island, I was blessed to have my family, you know, in, in my home, but I wasn't alone. And we had many individuals who were alone, um, particularly our seniors. And that isolating effect, um, you know, just, I mean, I, much, much deeper appreciation for that, for, for all of us in many ways. And the important support of mental health professionals yep. that are in town to support people. Sure. Absolutely. Alan, how did you do? Um, what did you learn? Staying home. I, I learned that it's really not work-life balance because whether it's the work, you know, for the business I'm involved with or my work on the select board for the town, because it's not work or life. It works just a part of life. So it's really work-life blend. Mm. And with the confinement to quarters, you know, with the potential isolation, as Shelby mentioned, agreed, finding my own space and taking advantage of it, but also knowing when it's time not to be in my own space um, because I need that or a family member or a friend needs that. And so having to, I think, um, learning that in COVID, you had to be deliberate in how you connected with people. Yeah. It required some planning and some effort. And I think one of the lessons I've learned is that it's worth, it, it's worth the time and the effort Absolutely. to do that. And it's actually improved some of my, you know, relationships with family members even. So it's been powerful. And, and I would just add, at least I think for both of us, uh, certainly, and I, I think it's two of all the members on the board that are professional work, like in our my line of work at that time, it was home care. And we were nonstop 24 by 7, 365 as a business. So while sales were different, you couldn't go into some of the locations, you know, before. So some aspects of it changed. The business had to run. And more than ever, Seniors were in their home and needed care, and more of them were coming out of you know uh, facilities that. Uh, uh, so so our workload actually increased along with all the complexities of COVID, and so um, I think that. I mean the the resilience. I think we're going to all look back on this and go you know hopefully never have to repeat it, um, but have a deep appreciation for how resilient we were and not just go, well, we just kind of got through it because it, it really has was an incredible time. And I want to commend Alan during this time. I, I, I think he was exceptional as uh, a member of the board, reaching out to people and checking in um, and just making that intentional outreach. And I think it, you know, makes a difference. So, so you left us um, when we talked last with each of you with a, wonderful little um, in-your-own-words quotes. 
So, Alan, would you like to tell us what you learned and what you um, wanted to be remembered for the future? I think now and in the future, when people think about the COVID-19 pandemic in this period of time, it's important to look back and reflect on what happened, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because there were definitely issues that were raised and divisions that were that existed that weren't as visible that became visible. And that enables you to think about, well, what do we want our community to be going forward? And what actions and efforts do we need to make to bring that to fruition? Thank you. And Shelby? Yeah, I, and I, I completely agree with Alan's comments. And I, I would just say, because I am pretty much an eternal optimist in most things, and I would just say that I think we did exceptionally well for a small town. Um, I think that we rose to the occasion. We made some um, decisions that I think in, you know, looking back on to Alan's point, we'd say, well, maybe we'd make it differently, but we made the the right decisions based on the, the information we had and really considering the community as a whole. So we did well. Thank you. And you did well today. So I thank you so much for joining me. And I look forward to your next term, uh, COVID-free, hopefully. (laughs) Thank you. And um, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hello and welcome. Today, my guest is Maureen Amiat. As the director of the library, um, I welcome you to our podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Now, the library is the the hub of the center of town, and I want you to talk just a little bit about what a day in, in the life of the library before COVID. Sure. So uh, a regular day at the library, I should say there's no tip, typical day. Every day is different at the library. Some days there might be... Uh, story time in the morning with the children's room full of young children, moms and babies, um, reading, singing, playing. Um, On the main floor, we have many regular patrons who come in and read uh, while it's quiet during the day before school gets out. Uh, There might be a book club happening, uh, people meeting just to meet each other at the library. An um, afternoon, we get a big influx of students who can walk to the library from the high school or from Gibbons. And um, actually, I just learned the other day that 55% of the kids who go to school in Westboro can walk to the library from their school, which is fantastic. We see that on a typical half day uh, when the kids are all flooding downtown. Um, But We have a big influx of kids who come in for homework and research, studying, study groups, tutors come in and tutor their their students. Uh, Sometimes we have after school events and then evenings. There's all kinds of things going on. There might be a craft program for adults. There might be a lecture, a community meeting in our meeting room. It's just something different every single day. And as a patron of the library and a lover of books. I used the library when I first moved here as a way to meet new people because I didn't know anyone um, and also to satisfy my desire to read. So it was an important um, 
location for me personally. Um, so when it did close for COVID, I was a little devastated. Um, so now you have this whole ream of people who have become accustomed to the rhythm of the library and the ability to take out magazines and read the newspaper and take out um, nonfiction and fiction and audiobooks. What happened? How did you hear for the first time that um, the governor was planning? Uh, did you hear it on your own? Did you have a meeting with the town council or the town select people? How did all of that happen? So I remember being at, there was a joint meeting of the select board and the school committee, and they were talking about possibly closing the schools for two weeks to deal with COVID. I was there and I was listening and I was uh, texting with the town manager, just like if they close the schools, we're going to be inundated with um, people, just kids and parents. And uh, I'm not sure how we will handle that. And um, so I didn't have to bring it up. Somebody else brought up the discussion about if we close the schools, we probably need to close the library too. So then the Board of Health got involved and I got a call uh, within a couple of days from the town manager just explaining we were going to be closing all of the town buildings and how that was going to work and you know what was going to happen going forward. Now, how many staff did you have pre-COVID that you had to um, break the news that you were closing? So we have we have 26 total staff members, but they're not all full-time. That includes our very part-time staff. So we have like about a total of like the equivalent of 13 positions, but 26 people. So when you gather those people together, whether uh, in live session or um, through emails, how did you break the news to them? And what was their first reaction when you told them that you were closing? So it was a fairly quick turnaround. So we, I didn't have the time to call a staff meeting. Uh, we usually, it usually takes at least a week to plan ahead with that many people to try and get everyone in the same room. And we just didn't have that kind of time. So, um, and they've been, they were looking to me constantly for information updates and, you know, they were anxious and worried and, you know, understandably. So, um, I just shared by email. Uh, we have an internal staff web page and everyone that I saw in person, of course, I I would make the rounds and talk to everyone and answer questions, make sure that they were they were OK and um, just got information out to them as quickly as I could. Um, and then pulled my department heads together to figure out a plan for, you know, the shutdown, how we were going to do it, how we were going to communicate it to the um, the patrons, to the residents. Now, the town was uh, under, um, just a second, Aiden. The town was supporting the salaries of the staff during the pandemic. So once the staff heard that, I'm sure it you know eased some of the um, anxiety. But what was their primary concern? Uh, they were very worried about their financial security, of course. But, you know, this team is so dedicated to taking care of the residents. Their first thought was, how are we going to get books and 
you know, other materials to patrons. And the, then they thought, oh my God, how am I going to still pay my bills? But um, they were so focused on trying to figure out, is there any creative way that we can get information or materials to patrons? Because if you remember back then, we didn't know yet how COVID spread. So we didn't know if we could give books to people. And by giving someone a book, was that going to spread COVID? Um, so that was their their first concern. And, um, you know, we we knew pretty quickly we weren't going to be able to circulate any of our physical items. So we kind of pivoted to promoting all of the things that you can get online, our eBooks, our downloadable audio. We had a music streaming service at the time. And um, we promoted our BrainFuse subscription to parents, uh, which is a homework help uh, live tutoring service that we've had for years. Um, and interestingly, that the usage of our eBooks and our downloadable audiobooks skyrocketed during COVID, but it has not stopped. I think the people who discovered it during COVID are continuing to use that service. Um, and, you know, just like a regular library book, it's borrowing a, an ebook instead of buying it. You know, you don't have to buy your ebooks. Sometimes you have to wait for them, but you don't have to buy them. You can borrow them from the library. And our usage of those uh, now is tremendous. Now, your patrons span from, as you said, infants and little toddlers um, to senior citizens who come in to read mm -hmm. the paper and see other um, folks that they've seen on a regular basis. But you had a particular concern early on in the pandemic about the anxiety of children. And you came up with a, a very nice idea. Yeah. So I um, I started my library career in children's services. I was a children's librarian or a teen librarian for a long time. And uh, I don't have any small children at home. My adult my child is an adult and is grown. And, um, but I was really concerned about young kids and how they were going to deal with the anxiety and the uncertainty that we were all feeling. So from right from the very beginning, I personally, uh, every night at 7 PM did a bedtime story, story time it was bedtime stories with Miss Maureen, <laughs> uh, on via Facebook live and that was when we didn't even have Zoom yet. Uh, we didn't, we were just starting to hear what Zoom was and starting to learn how to use it. But I just did it on Facebook Live because that's what I had at my fingertips was what I knew how to use. And I knew how to, anybody could just go to our Facebook page at seven and have stories. And uh, I did it for a couple of weeks every night at seven. And then once my staff got kind of settled and we got into a, a rhythm with uh, the work they were doing at home. Then I, I got to share it. You know, I didn't get to have all the fun all the time. So uh, other people, our children's librarian and some of our library assistants who really love doing story time, um, each took a night. And um, that was a way that we felt like we could stay connected with some of our youngest patrons. It was so much fun. And I'd get emails from people. And, you know, I heard later that there were, there was a family that moved here after COVID that 
what that was one of the ways they got to know the town was from my bedtime stories at night. And I, I just love that. I love that so much. It, it was just great. Well, I know that there was an act of kindness by the um, publishing companies that you told me about. Do you want to explain yes, a little the, bit? Um, so the publishers recognized that there was going to be a need for uh, all of us in public libraries to do virtual story times. So they all, all the big publishing houses waived all copyright restrictions on using their books and materials for that purpose and did so for quite a period of time during and immediately after COVID. So uh, thank you to them for that, for allowing us to do that. Now, your next largest constituency are the teens that come in um, and occupy a special place called the Teen Zone. Uh, what were they able to do with the library with it shuttered? Um, and how did you reach out to them? Yeah, teens are one of our uh, really active demographics. All of them are, but um, we have a fantastic teen librarian who also recognized that teens were facing a lot of anxiety during this time. So she did a daily uh, program for teens in the afternoons. Uh, also started around the same time I started doing story time. And they they found ways to connect with each other. Sometimes it was just a hangout and chat. She did a lot of trivia and different types of games that you could translate to a virtual setting, um, different challenges. And um, I think they, they really depended on that. Uh, that was a time when teens, like nobody, none of us could... Uh, socialize in person. And that gave them a social outlet and a way to relieve some of their anxiety. So we know that the adults were able to use the ebooks. The children had story time, the teens had activities. All the while, the library is closed. So we now have the regulars the seniors, um, the people who come in to read the Boston Globe or to check out a magazine. Um, and that no longer can happen because, as you said, you didn't know how the virus, or none of us did, how it was spread. So no one was touching anything to uh, no. enhance that spreading of it. But there was one other person who was in the library. And I think this is true of all of the, um, the buildings in the town that are town-run, or um, the custodians at the religious groups in town. Um, your custodian was here full he time was. every yep. day. And can you just tell us a little bit what he was up to? Oh my goodness, he was up to so much. He did so much work in the building while we were closed. He first did a thorough deep clean of every possible surface in the building. He um, painted a couple of rooms that needed repainting. He replaced bulbs. He went through and did all new filters because we had upgraded our filters uh, right as we were closing. We quickly ordered new filtration for the all the very old, tired fan units in the building. Um, but I think one of his biggest projects was outside as well, getting landscape uh, beds ready for the spring and going 
around the lower level, especially in the old building, repairing and just with putty and paint, all of the exterior wood frames on the windows, which were rotting. And that putty and paint is really what held those windows together to get to this point where we're at now. And um, that was that's one of the big projects that needs to be done uh, coming in the very near future, either with a renovation or um, a repair project. And had it not been for his efforts during that time, I don't know how those windows would have survived. But he was there keeping an eye on the building, making sure everything was running properly, everything was maintained, it was clean. And then later, when we were, were finally able to open to the public, we did so in shifts. And he was there in between shifts to do a thorough clean of all the surfaces again in between shifts so that the everything was clean for the next shift that was coming in. Did a tremendous amount of work and um, did so cheerfully and, um, you know, got to still see people walking by and, you know, see his smiling face hopefully mm -hmm. helped a lot of people at that time. Now it gets to the point where you can open on a limited basis. Yes. Um, and I'm sure that planning had going, gone into this because I think I was the second person in line to get into the library when it first opened. You had a lot of new um, procedures and protocols to take um, make measures to make sure that no one became ill. Um, and it started from when you walk in the door. Yes. We had a greeter station at the side entrance on Parkman Street. The front entrance was closed. So everyone had to enter through the Parkman Street entrance. We had a greeter. We all took turns at the greeter desk. And that was a small like card table size table with a plexiglass barrier. And the role of the greeter was to count, first count the people that were coming in, ask which department they were going to, and let them know that they were limited to about 20 minutes. Uh, we didn't follow people around with timers, but we asked them to limit their time. And probably most importantly, to sanitize their hands and to make sure that they were wearing a mask over their nose and mouth. And people were generally super cooperative because everywhere you went, you had to do that. And um, all of our service desks had plexiglass barriers. Uh, that was when we had to quarantine our books. So when you returned your books, Cliff, our custodian, would take them out of the book drop and bring them to our meeting room, which was closed to the public. That was our quarantine area. And everything sat for a minimum of three days. I think it might have started out at five and then eventually later went down to three until we learned that COVID was not spread by surfaces. Um, but we had limits on capacity, limits on time. And then our staff was in two separate teams. So uh, one group worked in the morning, one group worked in the afternoon to early evening. And, um, you know, for us as staff, that was hard. And for me as the director, there were staff on, I was on one shift, the assistant director was on another shift. So she and I never saw each other in person. And I didn't see the staff that, that were on the opposite shift. You know, we just really missed seeing each other and working 
together because we work really well together as a team. So yeah, it was very different, but it was so amazing that first day, every day, just being there and seeing people in the library again. Uh, I always joke, but I, I really did. I went home that first day and my face was aching from smiling all day behind my mask. Uh, I was so happy to see people. Now, you survived. You did outreach through deliveries. Um, you did kits at the front steps for children to pick up for activities. You left out crayon, uh, chalk to decorate the front walkway. Um, and it's now spring of 2021, and people are back in, and you're happy. And now we have to look at lessons learned. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of changes that we made. Um, just, I think, the way that we do our services. We still offer our home delivery service. That was something we added during the curbside pickup phase. Uh, if people couldn't get to the library, they could ask and we we would do a loop a couple times a day and drop things on people's porches or next to their mailbox. Um, that's still a service that we offer. Uh, we still will run books out to the curb if somebody doesn't want to or can't come in. Uh, we've expanded going out to the community more because we see the effect of how important that is to reach people that we can't that can't get to us. Uh, so we're now visiting three apartment complexes on a regular basis. We go to Arrive, to Park Village, and to Windsor Ridge. And hopefully down the road, we'll be able to expand that even further. Um, but it just, I think, really showed us the value of teamwork and uh, working together and really listening to the community and help, helping provide what they needed. Uh, we did a community survey earlier this year in like winter of 2022, and there were so many comments on that survey about what a lifeline the library was and how important it was to them during COVID that it kept them informed and entertained at a time when we couldn't go anywhere, we had to stay home, and how much people appreciate that. Well, thank you so much, Maureen, for all of you and what your staff did. And um, I know that the town appreciates the work that every town um, facility offered to the people during COVID. But for me personally, the library was a godsend when it opened again. <laughs> so thank you for that personally. And thank you all for listening. Hello, this is Wendy Mickle. I'm the town clerk in Westboro. And I just wanted to talk about the COVID uh, situation during the elections of 2020. As the word of the pandemic began to spread in January, February of 2020, the town clerk's office was preparing for one of the most contentious presidential primaries in decades. Phone calls about the election during COVID were rampant. All town staff were offered the COVID immunization in February and all of the town clerk's offices were vaccinated. We knew we'd be in close contact with the voters in the community during the election. We barely got through the primary election when everything was shut down. 
businesses, municipal offices, schools, etc. The town clerk's office was part of the shutdown, but my staff could do little work from home. The town election was to be held the following week after the primary and then the annual town meeting the week after that in March. Both the town election and the town meeting were postponed until June. During that shutdown, the town clerk's office fielded calls and emails from home from residents asking for help or information as where they could receive information about COVID immunizations. They asked who could provide hand wipes, sanitizers, and masks, and in times where they could be tested. Many residents who called were scared or edgy. Since we had been immunized, we could understand the anxiety of those who could not find the resources for themselves and family members. We had access to that information from the fire department and the Board of Health. Those two offices bore the burden of providing COVID information and services. We were able to provide whatever information we received from them to pass on to the residents of Westboro. Around April 2020, it was necessary that we return to the town clerk's office. Planning and preparations for any election happens months before the election takes place. Changing the way we did business for an election during COVID was essential and needed to be done quickly. Preparations for the scheduled town election and town meeting in June were going to take place. The town clerk's office had to be in touch with the Secretary of State's office relative to election procedures during the pandemic, like ballots being mailed and or additional legal postings required, along with election day planning itself. Poll workers needed to be contacted, and many former poll workers did not want to work during that time. It was difficult to to fill positions for Election Day at the polls, but there were new folks who volunteered to help, and many have stayed on. Those who worked were essential to the success of the election. During that time, hundreds of phone calls were coming in with concerns over how voting would take place. Newer accommodations were made to vote absentee voting and early voting to avoid crowds at the polls. Hours of planning to protect voters were applied for the town election and town meeting in June. We needed to be in the office to accomplish all that needed to be done. The town election was the first weekend in June. The annual town meeting was the second weekend in June. And the third weekend in June was my daughter's wedding. All were a success. Well, (laughs) a little bit. We no sooner finished June activities and we started to prepare for the state primary in September and then the 2020 presidential election in November. The town clerk's office was working every day, regular office hours from April 2020 on. The pandemic had to be overlooked and business had to be done. Whatever was needed, we were there to help if we could and prepare for all the elections that year. After all was said and done, the presidential elections were conducted and certified by the state. Hi, my name is Ed Bain. I am chair of the Westboro Affordable Housing Trust, and I'm going to speak a bit about a program that we ran during the height of the pandemic. Uh, between uh, May of 2021 and which ended in March of 2022. And that program was called the COVID Emergency Rental Assistance Program. And basically in response to the economic impact and loss of income to Westboro residents due to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the Westboro Affordable Housing Trust 
you know, it created a COVID-19 emergency rental assistance program. This program was administered by the Metro West Collaborative Development and provided rental assistance grants to eligible households. Now, applications were uh, submitted uh, to a company called Metro West Collaborative, which actually uh, implemented the program uh, through uh, uh, various applications where individuals who were renting and were affected, obviously, you know, lost their jobs or were downsized or, you know, maybe lost part of their, their income, uh, needed help meeting their, their rental assistance uh, programs. And uh, the program obviously was based more on need. It, it varied from, um, you know, generally up to four months uh, of assistance with different payments, you know, based upon the size of the apartment, which normally would also reflect the size of the family, everything from studio apartments, where we would help up to $600 all the way through three bedroom eligible households, which uh, mostly had children in them as well, up to $900. And um, the applicants needed to uh, have a household uh, income that didn't exceed 80% of the area median income. And in our case, we are based in uh, uh, the Worcester uh, area of uh, HUD, Housing and Urban Development, which sets uh, the area minimum uh, area uh, median income levels every, every year. Uh, normally, the persons in the household range from one up to up to six families of six, and uh, the uh, some of the households did receive some public assistance uh, from the state, et cetera, for other reasons, but. If they had really reduced their income, they still needed additional help. What we did is we were more or less a bridge between the programs that were spun up by the state or federal government for assistance. But we, the benefit that we provided was because we were local here in Westboro, we could respond much more quickly uh, to the needs. And the requirements we put in place were to uh, make sure that anybody who applied for assistance under this program, they also had to put in applications for state programs as well. So this way, we were not a long-term, um, if you will, uh, uh, you know, support group, but rather an intermediate. Uh, but we could get things going like within weeks because uh, we uh, used Metro West Collaborative. We allocated the money. We had uh, our parameters set up, and they were able to quickly um, uh, respond. And we obviously uh, publicized this through various media as well as uh, town websites, uh, et, et cetera. And uh, basically, the uh, we even provided uh, translation uh, services uh, for you know for people who needed uh, you know second language uh, support, and uh, we wound up uh, over time uh, serving about fifty individuals. And the total amount of money that we um, we spent 
uh, in in aid uh, came out to just just over a hundred thousand dollars, about one hundred and seven thousand dollars. So it made a significant difference in the lives of many people and and a number of families in Westboro. So it was a very successful program, and uh, we we're very proud of it. Okay. Uh, in addition um, to doing that program, we also saw uh, the need to educate landlords, particularly smaller landlords that may have uh, smaller, you know, four, eight unit kind of apartments or houses that they rented. And so what we did is we uh, mailed using our census records from town, our, our uh, assessor records, we sent out uh, letters to every landlord, anybody who was a you know uh, rented uh, apartments, to inform them of programs that were available at the state level, but which uh, required where they could actually do the application as long as the tenant agreed to it. So in some cases, particularly you know maybe with elderly uh, tenants, uh, they could sort of act a little bit as their agent. The benefit is, obviously, the the landlord was interested in continuing to have those tenants uh, in place. Uh, they didn't want them to lose uh, their housing, nor did the landlord want to lose the income from uh, that rental unit. So we gave them um, all the information they needed to assist their tenants in applying for uh, state aid. Uh, rental uh, assistance at the state level. Ba basically, this program, our uh, program uh, for the emergency rental assistance ran from uh, May 2021 through uh, March of 2022. That was when we made our, our last payment. Uh, and during that time, we had people coming into and then out of the program. Uh, generally, they were four months, a couple of cases we had, we did extend it to six months uh, support. I'm afraid, Bear. What are you afraid of, Rabbit? I don't know. I just am. Then I will sit with you until you're not afraid anymore. We will face it together. Thanks to all of our guests for sharing their experiences. <laughs>